Okay, so uh, one of our 10 big vision targets as a church is uh, we'll be a congregation who knows, honors, and reads the Bible. Uh, Or if you're here for four or five years, basically, we want you to be able to honestly say this. I grasp the story of the Bible. I respect it as authoritative. I know how to read it. And, of course, actually do read it. Now, again, just quick audience participation. Who's still sticking with our Bible before phone reading plan? Good. Several of you. Uh, it's gone so well. I think we'll, we might continue it for, for Advent. So more information on that coming forward. It's a pretty cool thing. So uh, in order to accomplish this vision target, this year we've implemented a strategy. Um, and that strategy is to have these Bible weekends here at church where we do like a deep dive college level lecture style uh, dip into different books of the Bible. And if you've been here with us this entire year, then you know that uh, we've been through several of them at this point. In fact, in two weeks now, we will uh, do our last Bible sermon for the year. And I mean, if I count them correctly, today we're at 1 Corinthians, but if uh, if I'm counting them correctly, 14. We'll have 14 books done by the end of the year. 14. That's, That's great, right? And even more important than that, what we've done over the course of the year is I've, I've strategically tried to choose books that allow me to teach you how to read the different literary styles of the Bible. Because the Bible's a library with different literary styles. I'm going to tell you what, this is more important probably than this. Because if you can figure out how to read these ancient literary styles, it just makes these different books easier. So, it's been an exciting time. Thanks for, again, audience participation. Show of hands. How many of you have, uh, have been here, you think, for most of these? Yeah. And we, st- we still liking them okay? Like, you still okay? Good. Maybe, do, should we do more in 2024? 20, All right, maybe we'll, do, maybe we'll do a few more. All right. Now, today we're in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. A letter from the Apostle Paul to? Okay, let's, let's stretch it out a little bit, you know. One of these two. One of these two right here, okay. It's a letter from the Apostle Paul to? Yeah, the church of Corinth, you know, the Corinthians. And uh, today, for the sake of this sermon, I'm going to call them Sin City Church. If I had to give them a nickname, it would be Sin City Church. It would be the pimple on Paul's back. It would be the church that made Paul pull out his hair. And today, you're going to see why. Now, before we get there, though, just a little bit of background, okay? Uh, in terms of a map, this is where Corinth is, is located. Down here is the Mediterranean Sea, right? So uh, if you were to move this direction, you're going to pass Italy and hit Spain. Um, if you move this direction, you'd hit North Africa, like uh, Libya and, uh, and Egypt is over here. If you were to move this direction, uh, you would hit Israel, Jerusalem, the eastern rim of, of the Mediterranean. Corinth is strategically placed right here, which makes it a, a city of cultural influence, commerce, and economic prosperity. It was the Roman capital of the region of Achaia at that time. And their population was about 100,000 people, which was big back then. Doesn't sound like a big city today. It was a big city back then. Now here's what made Corinth so special. If you can see right here, um, Corinth is right on this little uh, land slit, if you will, that, that goes from central Greece to southern Greece. See Athens here? Okay, that's central Greece, this is northern Greece, this is southern Greece. So in order to get from central Greece by land to southern Greece, guess where you had to pass through? 
Corinth. So like, let's say you wanted to go over here to Olympia, or let's say you wanted to go down here um, with the Spartans, Sparta, you know, like if you want to go there, then you, you got to pass through. So it was a major land trade route. Now, it wasn't just strategically placed on land. It was also strategically placed on the water. Do you see this little water slit that goes right through Greece here? This is called the, uh, the Isthmus, the Corinthian Isthmus. The Isthmus is a little waterway, right? As you can see, over here to the west is the Ionian Sea, where Italy is. Rome is kind of up here, right? As you can see over here, we got the Aegean Sea, where, uh, you know, Asia is. Places, huge cities like Ephesus are over here. So if you wanted to get goods from the capital of the empire to Asia, and trust me, you want to get goods from the capital to Asia and back, then guess what you would do? You wouldn't just sail down below Greece and try to weave your way up here. What you do is you'd go on the isthmus here into Corinth. And when you got to Corinth, if you had a small enough boat, they had actually developed a system back then. It wasn't a canal, but a, a system that where it's kind of like a paved road where they could drag your boat from the Ionian to the Aegean. And if your boat was too big, they would just drop your cargo off in Corinth, haul it over to the other side and put it on a different ship. So not only is it a land route, but it's a major waterway, trade route. It controlled the two major harbors where all the goods from the capital to Asia flowed. Uh, so you're beginning to see like this is, this is an important city. Now, because of that, lots of people came through. Lots of influencers came through. Lots of travelers came through. Lots of sailors came through. And so it was a place where there's lots of nefarious activity, to say the least. Sin City. I'm going to Mardi Gras in New Orleans. I'm going to Spring Break in Panama City. I'm going to the Ismanian games in Corinth. Basically the same thing. So here's a fact sheet of, of Corinth, by the way. I, I went through a lot of these. This, this is one that I didn't point out to you, but is interesting. The Ismanian games were the second big athletic event back then to the Olympics. Second biggest aside. Held in Corinth, right? This is a place that's amazing. Now, because so many people, by the way, came through Corinth of diversity, there were lots of different uh, temples and sanctuaries located there for the entire pantheon of the Roman gods. Um, and the one... The one temple that Corinth became most known for was the temple to Aphrodite. Aphrodite is the goddess of anybody? Love. Yes, the goddess of love. And um, show you a modern day re rendering, some modern day rendering of what it could have perhaps looked like in ancient Corinth. Now, as you can see, it's up here kind of on a hill. This is called the Acro Corinth. It's, about a, it's a mountain about 2,000 feet off the ground. Corinth would have been down there, the ground level. And in this temple, this is what made it so unique. Uh, there were uh, 1,000 priestesses that served there during the day as priestesses. And then at night, descended upon the city and worked there as, any guesses? Prostitutes. Now, by the time the Apostle Paul gets here, this temple laid in ruins. But it was popping long enough for the city to get a reputation. And the reputation Corinth got was a city of sexual immorality, drunkenness, and debauchery. Uh, William Barclay, New Testament scholar, wrote this. He said, the word Corinthiasistai, learn some Greek, 
or to live like a Corinthian, had become a part of the Greek language and it meant to, to, to live with drunken and immoral debauchery. Aelian, the, um, the late Greek writer, tells us that if ever a Corinthian was shown upon stage in a Greek play, he was shown as drunk. Now, yes, see that hand in the back. Go ahead. Uh, Tyler, why are you talking about all this history and geography? Uh, right. Well, part, part of the reason is because uh, no one at my gym cares about it. And <laughs> no one at my house cares about it. And you have to pretend like you care about it because you're at church, right? So, so I get to talk to somebody while we're here. Um, the other part of the reason, though, is that when you actually study the history of the city, you begin to see the context in which Paul goes to plant this church. And it helps doesn't it? It helps. So Paul looks at Corinth and he says, hmm, economic hub, cultural influence, also brimming with sinners. Yep. Let's go plant a church there. And I like that about him. He didn't choose the easy spots, but he chose important ones that needed a church. Now, uh, Paul ends up in Corinth on his second church planting trip, second church planting trip. And we'll get to that in a second. Uh, but I'm not sure if on his second trip, Corinth was actually in his plans until God detoured him there. Did you know this? It's actually a crazy story. So um, we talked a lot last week about how to read ancient letters because we read Romans. Uh, do, do you remember our conversation about this? So last week I showed you trick number one to reading an ancient letter from the Bible. Trick number one. And that is this. Treat it like you're listening to one side of a phone conversation. You ever been in a room where somebody's in a heated conversation and you're like, What's going on? You know, put it on speaker. And you, and you say that because every little piece of information you can get about who's on the other end of the phone helps you understand the conversation that's happening because you can't hear both sides at the same time. This is kind of what you have with an ancient letter. This is kind of what we had with Romans. And we listened to Paul's side of the conversation last week. We listened for names, for context clues, for the issues that he was addressing. And that helped us get an idea of what was happening in the church in Romans. We can do the same thing for Corinth. And we're going to do that today together in a second. But I want to show you another trick to reading ancient letters today. Especially ancient letters from Paul. Okay, you should always make sure that you look at Acts. Don't just look at the letter, look at Acts as well. Because oftentimes, Acts will give you the backstory. Do you know what Acts is? We, we covered Acts actually earlier this year. Acts is about a 30-year history of the early church. And over half of it is focused on the church planning journeys, the conversion, like just the life, if you will, of the apostle Paul. So if Paul wrote, let's say, a letter to the Thessalonians, which he did, you should look in Acts and see if he, well, if it says anything about him planting a church there, which it does. If Paul writes a letter to the Philippians, which he did, you should look in Acts and see, well, is there anything about the planting of the church there in Philippi that can help me here? And it talks about that in Acts. And it talks about Corinth as well. All right, so um, again, let's, let me show you a map here. It was on a second church planting trip that Paul plants Corinth. There's Corinth right here. We're going to get there in a second. But I want to walk you through the whole sweep of his church planting trip. Because I think when you look at the sweep of it, you'll see what I mean when I say that. I don't know if Paul necessarily wanted to go to Corinth. God detoured him there. So the second trip starts uh, with an argument. 
okay? Uh, you can see the kind of white box here. Paul and Barnabas, who are traveling buddies on his first church planning trip. Barnabas is basically the one who brought him into the, uh, the you know, influential Christian circles. They got in an argument uh, over a guy named John Mark. Uh, Barnabas wanted to give John Mark a second chance after he screwed up. Paul did not. Uh, he thought the second church planning trip was too important. So they split. Paul and Barnabas, uh, excuse me, uh, John Mark and Barnabas go one direction. And Paul gets a new traveling buddy, Silas, and they go in another direction. So as you can see, you can track the trip. Uh, Paul and, and, and Silas head up here. They go through Tarsus. They go through Derby, Iconia, and, and Lystra. And oh, and guess who they pick up here? They pick up a new name a name that you will be familiar with. They pick up Timothy. Timothy. Yeah, like first and second Timothy, you know, that Timothy, the, like the number one apprentice and intern of Paul, Timothy. They pick up him there. So talk about a free agent acquisition right here. Like this was the super team before super teams. Boom, Timothy, Paul, Silas, they roll in together. Now, once they get through here uh, and they get up here to like that, Antioch and Pisidia. What Paul wanted to do next was he wanted to penetrate uh, to Asia and, and hit some of these big cities in here. Because in Asia, there are cities like Ephesus, population of 250,000, one of the top five most important cities in the empire. There are cities like Smyrna, right above it, 100,000 population. There are cities like Pergamum up there, uh, which was one of the top two intellectual hubs in the empire at the time. Second greatest uh, library on the planet earth then. Paul wants to get to the city. He was an urban church planner because he recognized that if I can plant in the city, it'll have cultural influence that flows outwards. So he wanted to go into Asia, but guess what? God did not let him. We'll see this in a second. So what did he do? He started headed north and he wanted to go into Bithynia, but guess what? God did not let him. Paul was forced by the Holy Spirit to track all the way over here. And what we see is that he ends up in this place called Troas. And Troas is a nothing burger. <laughs> so you think. Now check this out. Let's, let's read Acts 16. Right, I want you to pay attention to the, the personal pronouns as we walk through this. You'll see here in, in a second why. In Acts 16, 6, we're, we're, tracking Paul's, we're tracking his missionary journeys. It says, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Come on, man, I want to go to Ephesus. Nope. So when they had uh, come opposite Messiah, they attempted to go into Bithynia. Remember, Bithynia was up north, but guess what? The Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go there either. Oh, come on, man, right? So passing by Messiah, they went down to Troas, Troas. right? And he's not happy about it. But while they're in Troas, check it out, during the night, Paul had a vision. A dream. There stood before him a man from Macedonia, which is where Corinth is, pleading with him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, notice the personal pronoun there. What's that word? We immediately tried to cross over to Macedonia, being convinced that God had called us to proclaim the good news to them. We set sail from Troas. Interesting development here. Now, does anybody know why the personal pronoun switch from they, them doing those things to we, us doing these things? Does anybody know why? Yeah, yeah. So we're not totally sure, but many historians and scholars say that it was there in Troas that perhaps the apostle Paul converted the author of Acts. What's the author of Acts's name? Luke. Who wrote Acts? 
Luke wrote Acts. Who wrote Luke? Luke wrote Luke, right? So you want to talk about super teams. Now we got Luke, Timothy, Silas, Paul, Steph Curry, and the gang ain't got nothing on this crew, right? They're rolling. Back to, the, back to the thing here. So we can't be totally sure, but again, why else would they go from they to we? Now, from Troas, Paul goes up to Macedonia. And you can, I'm not sure if you can see it on the map, but he hits Philippi while he's there. Significant church. That's, uh, that's at the end of Acts 16. He hits Thessalonica and Berea while he's there. That's the first part of Acts 17. He rides on down here to Athens. And guess what? That's where he speaks in the Areopagus at Mars Hill. That's the end of Acts 17. And then eventually he ends up down here, (coughs) excuse me, in Corinth where he'll plant a church. That's Acts 18. All right, are you guys still following me here? Do you care at all about this stuff? Okay, just checking. So uh, I'm not gonna read to you all of Acts 18 and what happens in Corinth, but I do want you to see how this church was founded. So I've made a brief summary of what the significant things are that happened. Okay, and these are, these are some interesting facts here. So uh, first, in Corinth, uh, Paul meets Aquila and Priscilla, and he actually stays with them and works together with them on making tents. Now, do you guys remember Aquila and Priscilla? These are two significant characters in the story last week in Romans. They become leaders with Paul. Uh, next, and this is Paul's MO, basically, anywhere he goes to plant churches. Um, But first he goes into Corinth and he starts by preaching in Jewish synagogues, trying to convince the Jews that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He has some success, but eventually meets Jewish opposition and they run him out. They call him a heretic, you're a false teacher. And so when he gets run out, he goes and he starts preaching to Gentile audiences and he has even more success. Now here's one of the really big key facts though that we pick up in Acts 18 that helps us understand Corinthians, all right? What we see in Acts 18 is that Paul stays in Corinth for a year and a half, 18 months, which doesn't seem like a long time, but go read how long Paul lasted in Thessalonica. Like he gets run out of places quick. So 18 months, that's an eternity for Paul. This is why I personally believe that Corinth was one of Paul's top three heart level churches. He just loved Corinth. As you'll see in a second, he put up with a lot of junk from them too. So he must have loved them. He loved this place. His number one heart level church, I believe, is the church in Antioch. That was the church that brought him in, raised him up, and sent him out as a leader. Beautiful multicultural church in the New Testament. His second favorite church, I believe, was Ephesus. Why? Why do I think that? He stayed there not for 18 months, but three years. And if you look at the end of Acts, his message to the elders at the Ephesian church, love those guys. I think his third heart level church was Corinth. 18 months, puts up with all sorts of junk from them and yet still has a heart for them. Now, as, as Paul kind of nears the end of his ministry in Corinth, we see another interesting fact. We see that he's drugged into court by the Jewish opposition in front of the governor of Achaia, a guy named Galileo, which some of you are like, why does that even matter, Tyler? Well, for most people, it doesn't, except for the history nerds, because you see, we actually have extra biblical, that's, that's evidence outside of the Bible, extra biblical evidence that tells us exactly when Galileo was the governor of Achaia. We know that he was the governor from July 51 to July 52 A.D. It is very rare that you can date with exact precision something that happens in the Bible. You can get close oftentimes, but with exactness, 
You, you just can't do it. This is one of the examples though. So we know for a fact that Paul was in Corinth planting the church at almost exactly this time. It's the only way he could have appeared before Galileo. By the way, if you go to the ancient ruins of Corinth today, anybody ever been to Corinth before, the ancient ruins of Corinth? Yes, if you go there today, you can see the judgment seat of Galileo. This is where Galileo would have been. He would have been up there on the platform. The judged Paul would be like down here uh, below and you would receive your judgment accordingly. There's the Acro Corinth, by the way. You see it? That's where the temple of Aphrodite was. Okay. Now, when Paul stands before Galileo, guess what? Galileo looks at his Jewish opposition. He's like, I don't care about your religion. Get out of here, right? So Paul gets off scot-free. So you know what the Jewish opposition does? They can't get their pound of flesh from Galileo or out of Paul. So they go and they beat up this guy named, anybody want to give it a shot? Sosthenes. We'll just call him Sous, all right? Good old Sous. And Sous is a synagogue leader. Now, why am I introducing you to Sous? Well, uh, it's because what we see is they beat up Sous. Fast forward five years, Paul writes the letter to the Corinthians and he has a co-author. Guess who the co-author is? This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and from our brother, Uncle Sauce. He's back, right? Or at least he's gone, but he's writing back. Now, is this the same Sosthenes? We, again, we can't be totally sure, but it seems to make sense. Sosthenes has been beat up by the Jewish opposition, probably doesn't want to be the synagogue leader anymore. So what does Paul say? He says, believe in the Messiah and come with me. And perhaps Sauce becomes a leader in the movement. Okay, now that's Acts 18. Uh, it gives us the backstory on Corinth. It doesn't teach us a lot, but it teaches us some important facts, doesn't it? It gives us some, a few huge details. It tells us Corinth's origin story. We know its founding date. We know Paul's special relationship with them, having stayed there 18 months. You still with me? Now, when Paul leaves Corinth, middle end of Acts 18, the vibe you get from Acts is that things are going pretty good. Like there's some local opposition. Yeah, sure. But uh, we got ourselves a church in Sin City. We planted a church on Fraternity Row. Look at us go, right? Like that's, that's no small feat. So Paul leaves feeling pretty good. He grabs a couple powerhouse leaders, Aquila, Priscilla, maybe Sauce, takes them with him. And Paul looks at the Corinthians he's like, you're in good shape. I spent 18 months with you. Y'all be fine. Grace and peace. They got this. Now, yeah, see that hand in the back. Go ahead. Tyler, did they got this? Nope. <laughs> they, they did not got this. And here's how I know. First Corinthians. Because First Corinthians is written about five years later, 56, 57 A.D., and when you read it, the church at Corinth has become a total dumpster fire. We got little cliques that have formed around celebrity pastors. We got all sorts of sexual immorality, mother-in-laws sleeping with son-in-laws. It's just gotten, whoa. Okay, we, got, we got meat sacrificed to idols. We got the poor people getting pushed to the back of the line at the church potluck. We got the rich people getting drunk off communion. I thought it was just grape juice, Tyler. Mm. Um, we got a worship service that is full of charismatic energy, but also 
chaos because everyone's getting slain in the spirit. So much so that, that Paul says visitors are coming in who don't know Jesus but are interested. And they're like, what in the name of Zeus? You know, and they're leaving, right? And then we got some folks saying that Jesus isn't risen from the dead which is kind of core to Christianity. I'm just like, no offense, you don't have to believe this if you don't want to, I do. If you don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, you're not Christian. It's like an entry-level requirement. So it took five years, five years, and Sin City had taken its church back. So Paul writes 1 Corinthians, which leads us to our interpretive key for this, okay? This is key, note takers, this is, this is your moment here. All right, this is the interpretive key for 1 Corinthians. I believe 1 Corinthians is a letter written in uh, these are my words, Q&A sort of style, you'll see that in a second, to a group of churches that Paul planted, we've seen that, and knew well, 18 months, right? And he wrote it in response to some very specific issues, and these were not good issues, and some very specific questions, these were not good questions, that they inquired to him about. Let me show you the first example of this, this sort of Q&A inquiry that we are, are given a chance to look into. After Paul does his introduction in 1 Corinthians to his letter, he writes this. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Beautiful little passage. Then he says, my brothers and sisters, some from, what's that name? Chloe's house have informed me that there are quarrels among you. Now, uh, who does Paul introduce us to here? Chloe, Chloe in Chloe's house. And what has Chloe done? Apparently, Chloe has never been taught that snitches get stitches because <laughs> she snitched. She informed on the, the Christians in Corinth. She's leading a church, her and her household are a church there in Corinth. There's some stuff going down, and I don't know how she communicated with Paul. Did she speak it to him? Did she send a messenger? Did she write it in a letter? But in some way, shape, or form, he's gotten word from Chloe and the gang that there are divisions among the church. Now, I point that out to you because what Paul's about to do for the rest of 1 Corinthians is he's going to do that over and over again. He's going to say, I heard this. Somebody asked this question. Somebody reported to me this. Somebody reported to me that. He's going to go through 10 different issues that way, and he's just going to take those issues on one at a time. All right, now, let me show you the issues. Are you with me? You see kind of the Q&A format? Let me show you the issues. And I'm, t I'm just telling you, this part, try your best to stay with me, follow me. It's a bit rigorous. Follow with me, though, because if you can get this outline mapped out in your head, you'll be able to read 1 Corinthians. It'll set you up for success reading this book forevermore. Okay, so here is issue uh, number one. Issue number one is unity. We already saw it, for it has been reported to me, Paul said, by Chloe, that there are quarrels among you. Do you know what the quarrels were about, by the way? Who their favorite pastor was. <laughs> Sounds petty, right? You're petty too. Okay, don't you, don't you put it past yourself. Paul says, some of you are saying, I'm a follower of Paul. Others are saying, I follow Apollos. Others are saying, I follow Peter. And then some are just one-uppers and they're like, oh yeah, well, I follow Jesus, you know? Paul goes on and says, what's wrong with y'all? Apparently other teachers came after Paul planted the church. Great teachers like Apollos. He's a good teacher. Peter, he's the apostle, right? Good teachers have come. And so cult-like personality cliques have formed around each one of them. And Paul says, 
Not one of y'all were baptized in Paul's name or Peter's name or Apollo's name. You were baptized in Jesus. He's what unites us. Which leads us to issue number two. I can hardly believe the report. You see, the report, he's received a report. I can hardly believe the report I've received about the sexual immorality going on among you. Something that, that even pagans don't do. Whoa, that's bad. Now, yeah, I see that hand in the back. Go ahead. Tyler, what was it? I know that's what you're thinking. Well, go read your Bible. And you can find it out. I'll sum it up for you. Um, there were basically a lot of people sleeping around with a lot of people. There was a stepmom and a stepson. It's not good, to say the least. So Paul addresses it head on. Issue number three. We're going to call these marriage issues instead of issued. Paul says, now regarding the questions, you, you see it? You see how... Again, he's received a question about this. He says, now regarding the questions you asked in your letter, yes, it's good to abstain from sexual relations because there is so much sexual immorality. Each man should have his own wife. Each woman should have her own husband. And off he goes into this sort of tirade on marriage and marriage issues. In this part of the letter, he addresses uh, things like how to navigate desire, how to navigate loss, how to deal with your spouse if they're not a believer or if they want to leave the faith. Incredibly practical and apparently an issue that's being dealt with in Corinth. What's the next issue? Unmarried issues. Because later in chapter 7, he says, now I'm going to hit on your, your other question about this. It's about the young women who are not yet married. And in this part of the letter, he addresses things like celibacy, single, and living on purpose. What are we at? Is it five? Issue number five. Same issue as in Romans. Eating food sacrificed to idols. Food and freedom is what I would call this issue. Y'all remember this. Uh, uh, the Gentile Christians get their meat, they get their steaks at the meat market next to the pagan temple. They don't care that it was sacrificed on the altar to a pagan god. And the Jews are like, no, that's too close to idolatry. And they're like, no, those idols aren't, aren't real anyways. They're just stone and wood. And back and forth they go. Then apparently there was another dynamic in Corinth where outsiders were watching them eat this meat and, and being caused to stumble or misunderstand Christianity because of it. So there's just this big argument about food and freedom. Paul addresses it. And again, he says, now regarding what? Your question. You see, do you see the systematic way he's moving through this here? If you flip through your Bible, you can follow. Issue number six. This is an interesting one. Injustice and drunkenness at the Lord's Supper. Now, I'm not going to read all this to you. I, just want, I do want you to see. Um, he says, it sounds as if harm is, more harm is being good. First, I hear that there are divisions among you when you go to the Lord's Supper. Right? I want you to see, like, again, he's addressing what he's heard, what somebody has told him. Now, here's how I'd summarize this one for you. Um, communion for them looked a little different than communion for us. To say it was, they didn't eat a little chiclet and drink some juice. Apparently, it was an entire meal. At this meal, it was usually the rich people who would bring the food. So, because they brought the food, they went through the line first, put the poor in the back, filled their plates up, and sometimes by the time the poor got through the line, there wasn't nothing left. That ain't right in the body of Jesus, is it? Oh, and by the way, while they're taking or uh, partaking of this meal, apparently the rich were drinking just a little bit too much. And we're getting drunk during communion. Ooh, dogie. Where are we at? And how many is this? What was it? Seven. Thank you. 
Keep me on track here, people. Seven, uh, we've got pride and chaos at the worship gatherings. Pride and chaos. Now, brothers and sisters, regarding your question, it's another question, regarding your question, uh, so here, here's what's happening here. At the worship gatherings, uh, people are coming in, they're having powerful spiritual experiences, uh, which is fine, except for the fact that they're being disruptive and disrupting the gathering. People are getting slain in the spirit. They're crying out. They're asking questions and interrupting uh, the, the speaker. Um, and it just made the gathering chaos. And there also seems to be some people with certain gifts that think they're superior to other people with other gifts. And so there's disunity in the body. Eight, there is, uh, there's arguments over resurrection theology. Or we might just call it doubts. Paul says, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say, how did he know that they were saying it? He received some sort of, you know, report, right? How can some of you say that there is no resurrection? So that's an issue. The last two issues aren't super important for our purpose today, but I do want you to see it. There's a ninth issue in chapter 16. It says, now regarding your question about offering, Paul was collecting an offering for the poor in Jerusalem. And so they were asking about the logistics of that. And then here's uh, issue number 10, Apollos' visit. Apparently there was like a, an Apollos stalker group in Corinth that really just liked Apollos because uh, Paul says, now, now about our brother Apollos, I urged him to visit you. They're like, when's Apollos visiting? When's Apollos visiting? Tell us when Apollos, I urged him to visit you, he said, with the other believers, but he didn't want to. <laughs> he was not willing to go right now. He will see you later when he has the chance. He ain't coming. All right, if I can read between the lines. He ain't come. And I wouldn't blame him because Corinth is, is something. That place was a mess. You ever had a, a friend or one of your kids where when you talk about him, you're like, oh, she's, she's just a mess. Raise your hand if you got a friend like that. Uh, raise your hand if you are that friend. Okay, <laughs> we're going to call you Corinth because they're just a mess. All right. Here's the issues for you all in one slide. And again, let me sum it up for you again. Do you see why I say it's a Q&A-like document? Do you see why? Because systematically, Paul moves through one issue after the other, one question after the other, and addresses them. He just goes down the list. Now, it's funny. Uh, at Northeast, we are uh, a part of what, what, they, what they call the restoration movement. Or restoration movement church. It's not a denomination. It's more of a, a movement. Um, Raise your hand if you know anything about the restoration movement, if you've heard of it. Just raise your hand. So not a lot. We'll do, the, we'll do a history on that someday. Not today, but someday. Um, here's what you need to know. Our core plea as a restoration movement church is uh, we want to restore the dynamic life of the New Testament church back then to the church today, the modern church today. I like that plea because it says we want to be a biblical New Testament church. Love the historical side of that. But I'm also a cynic. If you don't know this about me, I just can be a cynic sometimes. And so the cynical side of me says, restore the New Testament church, restore the New Testament church, restore the New Testament church. Sure. Which one? Because not this one. We ain't restoring that here. Better not be. Not Romans. By the way, go read all of Paul's letters. We don't want to restore any of those churches. At least not perfectly. Because all of them had Tremendous amount of sin and dysfunction in them. So can I get devotional with you for a second? Just for a minute. People are hard on the church today. They are. 
I want you to know the church is an amazing institution. It is. It churns out more charity, happiness, and good human beings than any other institution on earth today. And that's actually, you can statistically prove that from a lot of different angles. So we got a lot going for us. But people can be so hard on it. Like the first thing the church does wrong or the first sign of dysfunction in the church, people are all like triggered and fragile and judgmental. And it's church hurt, you know. I'm gone. I'm deconstructing everything because there was a mean person at that church. What did you expect to find? You know, I can't believe it. Those hypocrites. I went to church and there was a sinner there. Okay, where are you going to go where you won't find a sinner there? I'll answer that. Nowhere. Because everywhere you go, there you are. <laughs> Your poor shadow. A sinner follows it around every day, and you don't hear it complaining. So I'm not trying to justify the egregious sin we find in churches sometimes. We should be the first to call it, uh, to call it out. We should hold ourselves to the highest standard, church. But I want to point out that building a healthy church is hard. Even for Paul. And what I learned from Paul here is that, one, we need leaders willing to speak truth into the issues on sin, on selfishness, on false teaching, on greed, on idolatry, on disunity, on pride, on sexual immorality. But what I also learned from Paul is that we need patience with one another. Let us not be surprised when our brothers and sisters fail or fall. Even after five years. Okay. Now you got the lay of the letter. The rest of this is going to move fast. It's going to move fast. Because here's what I want to do. I want to show you how Paul answers these issues. And he answers them all the same way. The same way. The same model. The same framework. First, we've already seen it. He address, This is Paul's approach, right? He addresses the issue very directly. Now I'm going to talk about that. And then second, every single time what you're going to see is he goes to resolve that issue in the following verses with the gospel. With the cross-shaped love and resurrection life found in Jesus. By the way, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we get one of our clearest definitions of the gospel. The apostle Paul says, let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news. The Greek word underneath that is the word for gospel. It's the same word, it's gospel. Let me remind you, the gospel I preached to you before, you welcomed it then, you still stand firm in it today. It is the gospel, the good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message that I told you, unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. So this is what Paul was taught when he converted. What's the gospel? He says, well, Christ died for our sins. Just as the scripture said, he was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said, the word of the Lord. And there it is. There it is. You see, very clear. The gospel for Paul isn't a theological formula in so much as it is a set of historical events with huge theological implications. 
And he believes, and what he'll show us in 1 Corinthians is that this gospel, Jesus crucified, the cross, the cross-shaped love that we see and feel and experience therein, and Jesus risen, the power of the Spirit in the empty tomb, that right there is the power of God to overcome any issue in your life, any issue in the church. So in chapters 1 through 4, to the disunity and personality-based factions, guess what Paul does? He appeals to the cross. He says, unite, but do not unite in the wisdom of pastors. Unite in the foolishness of the cross and the power of the Spirit. It is ridiculous, Paul says, to pretend like a pastor or a denomination somehow makes you superior to other people. No, the only thing any person or any pastor, for that matter, has to contribute to the gospel is the sin that we all need saving from. That's it. This, by the way, is what makes the cross so foolish to the eyes of the world. You uh, you can't earn it. It undermines the meritocracy that we want to live in. Paul says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know it's the power of God. So he goes on and says, on judgment day, the builder's name won't matter, the church's name won't matter, the preacher's name won't matter, the pastor's name won't matter. No, what matters is your foundation and whether or not it is Jesus. So imitate your leaders only in so much as they imitate with Jesus, uh, imitate Jesus. That's what we must unite around. Next, to sexual immorality and marital issues. Once again, Paul appeals to the cross and the resurrection. First, he says, the great power of sexual sin, and trust me, he knows how powerful it is. He says, this is, this is great power. It's so, so powerful. The great power of sexual sin, though, he says, was dealt with on the cross. You have power over it. Do you believe it? Because you do. It is not an uncontrollable desire. You have real power. It is not so fundamental to who you are that you can't resist and walk in the power of the cross. No, you've been given power through the cross over any and all sin. And he goes on and says, you know what? Our sexual integrity will show whether or not we're living in that reality how much access to that power you have. Paul says in 6.18, he says, run from sexual sin, run. Run, man, run. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. So he goes on and he says, our bodies will be raised. What you do with your body now matters. It's not your body anyways. And I love how he ends it. He's like, oh yeah, by the way, if you never marry like me, even better. (laughs) Now look, look, that passage that I just read here, this 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 mindset about sexual sin and, 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 and human sexuality, it is absolute madness to the world. It's insanity to our pornified and liberated culture. You and I know that. Consent is all that matters. But our high and holy view as Christians, it runs against the grain of the freedom and liberation our culture boasts. So the idea in our culture is if we stop making such a big deal about sex, it won't be such a big deal. This started in the sexual liberation movement mid-1900s, sex was basically moved from forever to whenever and whoever with the promise of freedom. But it hasn't been freeing, has it? Instead, it's caused a lot of suffering. That's, but, that's mainly been put on the shoulders of women and children. 
the, honestly, the question a generation later, 60 years post this in retrospect is, 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 has it been freeing? Has the sexual liberation movement actually been freeing? Is America healthier in the arena of sex because of it? To which reality says no. Like everyone is carrying around these wounds, aren't we? Betrayal, divorce, infidelity, abuse, addiction, porn, trust issues, body image. Our culture's attempt over the last half century to cheapen sex is at best naive and at worst what has led to the horrible uh, spikes in divorce, abortion, missing fathers, all the power abuse cover-ups, the Me Too movement. It's wreckage, y'all. So maybe we should learn there's a reason why Scripture has such a high view of our bodies. Those walking in the way of Jesus recognize this. We recognize that sexuality is a good gift from God, but it is one that we treat flippantly at our own peril. This is the message of Paul. Let's keep moving. Uh, Next issue, to the meat sacrifice to idols and the Lord's Supper. Paul's clear on this one. He says, cross-shaped love sacrifices its personal freedoms for the sake of others every time. Sacrifice freedom for the sake of others every time. It's in there. And I can't help but think when I read this passage in 1 Corinthians of all of the I know my rights issues that are getting duked out in the public square and then drug into the church and dividing us. Paul says, literally he says in this passage, just because it's lawful doesn't mean it's beneficial. So use wisdom when it comes to how you eat. Look around and say, what does love look like? What would be the loving thing for them, for her, for him, for these people around me, rather than the freeing thing for me? 1 Corinthians 10, 23, he says, you say I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. You say I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. Don't be concerned for your own good, but be concerned for the good of others. Next, chaos and confusion over our gifts and the gathering. He's clear on this. He says, the gathering is not for me and my intense spiritual experiences. That's not the point. The gathering is not for me and my opportunity to speak my mind or flop my faith. That's not the point. The gathering is for us, the body of Christ. This is where he builds the body of Christ metaphor. He says it's for us, the body. So love means using your gifts for the common good. Without love, nothing we do here matters. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul does this thing where he exaggerates the very best spiritual gifts. And he says, even if you have that gift, love don't, without love, it, ain't, it don't matter. He says, I, if I could speak all the languages of the earth, languages of angels, but I didn't love others, guess what? I would only be a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, but not just prophecy, I understood all of God's secret plans, but not just that, I possessed all knowledge, and not just that, I had the faith that I could move mountains, but... I didn't love others, I would be nothing. He says, if I gave everything I had to the poor, just all of it, and I even sacrificed my body for them, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing, you see. It all boils down to love. And then, of course, to the doubts about resurrection, he just shuts it down. He says, look, y'all, the resurrection was a vindication of Jesus' cross. It was an affirmation of Jesus' claims. It was a demonstration of Jesus' place. It was a confirmation of our hope, and it is our motivation for our job right now. If Jesus isn't risen, then the cross is not enough. That's what he says. So let us not neglect that side of the gospel. Okay, 1 Corinthians. There you go, in um, 45 minutes, we did it.
So here's how I want to apply this for you. And we're going home. I think you see in 1 Corinthians how Paul welcomes every confused Christian and every broken church into a new reality. He welcomes you to see life through a new perspective. It's a reality that reasons through the lens of cross-shaped love and it's a reality that runs on the power of resurrection life. So look, I think today that I can speak for the apostle Paul when I say to you, whatever your issue is, and Corinth had a lot of them, whatever your issue is, love is the answer. Now, I just got to be clear here. We have a very specific definition of love, though, when we look at 1 Corinthians, okay? It's cross-shaped love. It's the sort of love that says, I will put your good before my own. I will put your flourishing before my freedom. I will put your growth before my comfort. I will put God's will before our wants. This is the love we see in the cross. This is how we channel the power of the cross out into the world. But this is not how our culture defines love. Everybody, every cause, every group today claims to have the corner of the market on love. Love is on our side. Okay, and when I hear a group say that, I always say, all right, well, I gotta take that though. I gotta take it and I gotta run it through that filter. Put those four up again. I gotta run their, their idea of love through this filter right here. Are they putting others good over their own? Are they putting their own freedoms underneath the flourishing of others? Are they putting their comfort over, uh, under your growth? And are they putting God's way over their wants? Because if they're not, that's not biblical love. That's not cross-shaped love. See, and here's what I find. I find that, that the mistake that happens most of the time in our culture is, is what they'll, do is they'll, they'll take one expression of love, a good expression of love, and then they'll coronate it as love. So let me, let me give you an example. Um, tolerance. Uh, tolerance is an expression of love sometimes. Sometimes tolerant, tolerating someone is, is loving them. You tolerate the small quirks or you tolerate some of the things about your husband or some of the things about your wife because, because you love them, right? You tolerate when, when it takes somebody a little bit longer to grow or come along than everyone else because you, you see them trying their hardest, right? A lot of times tolerance can be love, but sometimes it isn't. Tolerance isn't always love. Sometimes tolerance is enablement. Sometimes if you're not careful, you'll tolerate someone as a sin in their life destroys them because you don't want to risk the relationship. You want to you hold on to the so-called peace that you have between you. You're scared to speak the truth. See, see, you see how this works? Speaking of peace, peace is an expression of love. A lot of times people will say, you know, if you don't keep the peace, then, then you don't love this city, right? To which I think, well, okay, yes, yes, but no, but no. See, what kind of peace you're talking about there isn't actual true peace, the presence of justice. It's the absence of tension. Sometimes keeping the peace in the relationship is the exact wrong thing to do because if you truly love that relationship or you truly love that city, you're gonna introduce something into that relationship that shakes things up and stirs things up a little bit. It's called the truth. What about freedom? Well, sure, sometimes allowing somebody to, to choose freely is, is the loving thing to do, but also sometimes discipline is the loving thing to do. What about justice? Well, sure, sometimes justice is an expression of love. Sometimes forgiveness is an expression of love as well. 
Do you see how this works? We need a better definition of love, a more fuller vision of love that brings all of these good things together in all of their power and all of their beauty, but with wisdom and discernment on how and when to dispense them. And I'm telling you right now, we get that in Jesus and we get that in the gospel. Jesus says, love is sacrificial, you over me. Love is truth and the truth will set you free. Love is unconditional, there is no other option. Love is unmerited, uh, expects nothing in return. Love is wise and discerning. What does love look like? And, and the empty tomb shows us that love is the power of God. Or in other words, you're going to win. We're going to win. Okay, so I was thinking about this this morning before the nine o'clock service. My, uh, it, just, <laughs> it just happened yesterday. So my son, uh, Palmer, was playing baseball. He's had a game yesterday. And uh, he pitched a really good first inning. Pitched really good. Struck two guys out, come off the field. He's got tears in his eyes. So I pull him aside. I'm like, hey, man, what's, what's wrong? You, you pitched a good inning. And, uh, and apparently, he told me, so apparently the, um, the kids in the other dugout were picking on him while he was pitching. Now, he's, he's kind of he's, he's shorter for, for uh, his size. He's shorter. And he said the kids in the other dugout were, were shouting, he looks like a first grader. He's a second grader. That got to him. So, uh, so I, I'm his coach. I'm also his dad. Uh, if you've ever been around me on a baseball field, you know that my baseball energy is, uh, um, it's, it's, Christ, it's Christian adjacent, all right? It's, it's there. It's good. So I just like, I don't know why, like I just react, right? When he says, I just react and I'm like, I'm like, who cares? Like, that, like who cares? We'll talk with the scoreboard, kid. Okay, you're leading off this inning. Go up there, hit a double, steal third and then gritty across home. We'll tell them, about, tell them about first graders. Not a good piece of advice, but anyway, so, so he goes, he gets ready to hit. He's still upset. And another one of his, uh, his coaches, who's much better in situations like this, named James, he grabs Palmer. He says, Palmer, Palmer what's, what's wrong, buddy? And Palmer tells him. And James puts his hand on his shoulder and goes, hey, it's okay, man. Shake it off. Sportsmanship always wins. And I was like, oh, that's good. Why didn't I think of that? <laughs> that's right, son. Don't gritty across home. Sportsmanship always wins. <laughs> but it's true. In the small issues and the big issues, hear me now, y'all. Love always wins. So guess what? You're going to win. You're going to win. So I'll ask you again today, what are your issues what sin do you need God to step in? What problem do you need God to solve? I don't know your problem, but I know the solution. The cross-shaped love of Jesus that leads to resurrection life. The question really is, whatever your problem is, whatever your sin is, will you draw from the power of the gospel? Because you can love your way out of this mess that you're in. You can. That's the message of 1 Corinthians. That problem in your city loves the way out. That issue at work loves the way out. That issue with your husband or your mama or your son, love is the way out. The fear in your heart, love is the way out. The thing that's giving you anxiety loves the way out. That sin that has your body, I'm telling you, if you will let the love of Jesus in, you can love your way out. And it won't be easy. In fact, sometimes it might feel like a crucifixion, but love will get you through. I just need someone to testify today about what Jesus' love has brought you through or brought you out of, because I know what it's done for me. I do. When I wanted to give up, 
Love was the power that kept me going. When I was confused and didn't know what to do, love was the answer all along. When I wanted revenge, love told me to forgive as I've been forgiven. When the world made me weary, love reminded me that I am someone to the only one who matters. And when sin brought me shame, love told me one name, and that's Jesus. So look, I know the gospel. I've read the story beginning, middle, and end. Love has a name. His name is Jesus. He rose from the dead, so you're going to win. You're going to win. I've read the end of the story. We're going to win. The empty tomb proves that love can find a way. Love will find a way. There is power in the foolishness of the cross. The Holy Spirit raises from the ashes those who will allow love to burn them down. So I'll ask you one more time. What are you facing today? Paul says, face it with the gospel. And you're going to win. So Heavenly Father, there's so many issues in this room right now. I don't know the strongholds or the suffering or the sin in people's lives, but I pray over my brothers and sisters. I pray over the flock of Northeast Christian Church as their pastor and someone who loves them. I pray that love would prevail in their lives. Give them a vision of the cross today as they leave. Let that power of cross-shaped love sink into that sin or sink into that issue. Give them clarity, give them wisdom, give them strength, give them power so that they can go into their home city, workplace, into the neighborhoods with the resurrection life that you have for us. We love you, Jesus. You are why. Holy Spirit, help us along the way. It's in Jesus' name.